Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where every week we gather together electronically to have conversations and listen in on conversations with thinkers and leaders. And uh, today, I'm really excited to look at Signposts in a Strange Land in the arena of art and creativity and theology and making with Makoto Fujimura, who is a world-renowned artist. Uh, Many of you are already familiar with his work. If you're not, you should uh, definitely look into it. He is, as I said, known around the world. He has a, a studio in uh, at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, uh, and I think divides his time between Pasadena and Princeton, which I was telling him those are two really idyllic places to get uh, spoiled in, in living uh, around. And he's the author of a book called Culture Care, Reconnecting with Beauty for Our Common Life, which is the book that benefited me immensely. I really resonated with this book and learned a lot uh, from it. Makoto, thanks so much for being with us on Signpost today. It's great to be here, Russell. Thank you for having me. I um, was thinking as I started your book, uh, when I read it uh, the the first time uh, several months ago, about uh, having a conversation with a Catholic friend, Roman Catholic friend, who um, edited a, a magazine. And he said, I'm just so tired of all of the converts to Catholicism from evangelicalism who all want to write about how art is beneficial. He said, when obviously art is beneficial. And I said, well, yeah, but I see the same thing the other direction. People who have come out of maybe Roman Catholicism into evangelicalism who want to write about personal relationship <laughs> all of the times. So I think whatever somebody sees as a deficiency where they're where they're coming from, they're going to want to explore and to talk about. Uh, but as I was reading this, I I wondered why is that the case though? Uh, for for so many people, particularly in the evangelical community, where for many who are appreciative of the visual arts or the, the musical arts at a certain level, there almost is an epiphany that has to happen where they see something that was previously devalued. Is is that an accurate representation in, in American life or not? Uh, it sure is. And there are many facets of that. Um, and part of the fragmentation that we experience in the church is this um, different ways, I suppose, looking at the gospel and and how how to apply that um, into our lives and culture is a 
difficult topic. Uh, you know, the, when I write about cultural care, I, I understand that there are many different ways of approaching it, even different definitions of it. Um, so we can only speak in metaphors. <laughs> so we tend to use the word culture wars um, in, in ways of describing what's going on in politics and in the church. And, uh, and, and yet I, I, I say, I make a case, I hope, in, in the book that that's, that's not a very useful term in terms of describing the cultural condition and uh, more importantly, is setting up a future for our children. So um, I, I think about the fragmentation between various camps of Christian circles that would approach this differently as well. And I, I tend to appreciate that you know, and and want to have a very broad, uh, vigorous discussion that that can lead to uh, a better uh, soil of culture. How do you define culture? This is something that right. I find often <laughs> people use the word without sometimes even having a common meaning. Right, and and that's that's certainly it. It comes from the word uh, cultus in uh, Latin and. So when you have commonality uh, among groups or, uh, you know, when you have a geographic commonality uh, shared, uh, that that tends to be a beginning place of defining that term. And yet that, that's not very helpful either because I always say culture is us. We don't really have today, especially with uh, internet, we really don't have these borders that used to exist very clearly. And when Jesus says to love your neighbors, um, I think that definition of a neighbor is different as well. And so culture, I like to, again, in defining it, use metaphors. And, and, and I always say culture is a, a ecosystem, a garden to steward rather than a uh, battleground to fight over. One line that I... I made a note uh, by in my copy of the book highlighted is uh, when you say a cultural fragmentation comes when we fall into the trap of treating survival as the bottom line and thus neglect the holistic approaches that demand personal growth and point our civilization toward a greater vision. And as I was reading that, I, I couldn't help but think about a time in my own life where I found my creativity stalling. I, I just, uh, I had not just writer's block, but every kind of block. And I was talking to this older man that I respect greatly in these things and said, I don't know what's wrong. And he said, well, what you're missing is play. You, you have to have a, a sense of play in order to create and you are in the state of, of uh, vigilance all the time right now, and you're not going to be able to reclaim your creativity until that's over. And so when I read that, I thought that's a really interesting uh, point. It's almost as though we see that phenomenon happening broadly, sort of uh, across uh, the culture where there's a sense of, of hypervigilance that, that leads to a stopping up of, of creativity. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's it's uh, well described. When I speak to Christians in the church, especially uh, those who are well trained, right, uh, pastors and parachurch leaders, who has um, 
been through the discipleship programs and they they know what Galatians 5 means and fruit of the spirit means and being filled with the spirit and and you know the uh, role uh, road to discipleship um, goes through Galatians 5 and you know love joy peace patience kindness gentleness uh, goodness faithfulness uh, and so forth self-control and I ask the church, uh, how are we doing? You know, um, of course, that question is often addressed to individuals. You know, how are we doing in our discipleship? Uh, how are you doing with your quiet time and prayer? And, you know, is, is your life manifesting the fruit of the Spirit? And I just pause and say, well, how is our culture doing? <laughs> Whether it be the culture of the church you know, you just name it, name any culture. How is it doing? And we just have to say that even when it comes to the best of us, we are living in the scarcity mindset, as, as you know, this battle zone uh, mindset. And there is no uh, room for playfulness. Uh, there's no room to regain our innocence, uh, for imagination to grow. Um, and, and that leads to, I think, this related problem of spirituality being, being something that is less than love. You know, we, we put up defenses, we demonize the other side. So instead of love, we have a kind of a hatred toward uh, culture and fear instead of peace. And, and this um, anxiety instead of joy. And we are no longer children of God. We are, you know, we are this culture war soldier um, out there doing our best and trying to defend our turf, which is ever so shrinking. And so, you know, I, I look at that and say, you know, maybe perhaps we have been so focused on individual discipleship that we kind of forgot that it's not about just individuals, <laughs> you know. It's about the culture of the church. It's about our ecosystem that we are creating and our children are feeding so afraid to wade into. Um, and, and, you know, because I, I, I meet these children of evangelicals in, uh, in Greenwich Village, you know, and they, they're usually dancers and artists, you know, and, and I, I tell them, so, so why do you, uh, you know, why do you hate the church? And they tell me their stories and I say, well, oh my goodness, if I experienced that, I would hate the church too. I'm so sorry. Um, and. And so out of that came this notion that, well, maybe we're not looking at ourselves from the lens of how God will see us, you know, through the body of Christ, through the communal means of finding playfulness <laughs> and joy and therefore love and peace. Maybe the fruit of the Spirit should be approached from a cultural perspective, and work backwards, <laughs> and and you know, and, and th th those are some thoughts that I've, I've had over the years. You talk about in the book this concept uh, that I I really resonate with uh, of border walkers or, or border stalkers. <laughs> you say, yes. and the reason I, I resonated with it is because I find myself in that situation 
all the time (laughs) where uh, maybe I'm the only, not just the only Christian in a room, but the only Christian that a group of people have ever met. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, vice Mm -hmm. versa, the the same thing uh, happens in in reverse. Um, What does that mean to you, that idea of of border walking and, and how should we Think about yeah, that. so that term was introduced to me by my friend um, Bruce Herman, who is also an artist, and he, he was reading Tolkien, and Tolkien uses the word meastapa, which is an old English word for border stalkers, and uh, Grendel is a meastapa, you know, <laughs> and, uh, um, and and artists tend to be in the borderlands, and we, we do tend to get isolated. That's very dangerous. We, we You know, we, we should note that um, we need each other. Jesus told us to go out in twos for good reason. Uh, we can be easily get lost in the darker woods, and um, there are ravenous wolves out there too. We we have to really uh, understand that. But on on the other hand, it's the border stalkers who uh, are able to cross tribal lands and enter into another territory and come back with the good news of. Uh, another wisdom, uh, a tradition um, that can help uh, children to grow. And leadership oftentimes is not so much protecting our tribal you know, arenas that we've been given, but understanding the context of the tribe in, in, in the world, in the complex world. And so border stalkers tend to be good leaders if they can be trained as one. Um, border stalkers also tend to be transgressors so they may end up um, you know being being known for that but you know in, in Tolkien's own character a strider of the Bree is uh, it, it turns out to be Aragon the king and it's Gandalf who sees the potential in this young ranger uh, leader who is who seems to be very dangerous sitting in a corner um, at the end but uh, but he's, he's also able to cross into elvish <laughs> uh, land and end up marrying uh, uh, one of th- that tribe and 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 then used by God to reunite the kingdom um, which, which is precisely because he's a border stalker that he's un, he's able to understand the complexity and difficulties of negotiation and able to represent his own tribe in the context of that one of the things that I I noted when you were talking about the way to create a culture of culture care uh, to be redundant again in, in the way I'm framing it here is I found it fascinating that you said, we need to be willing to endure demotions uh, right. in order to be custodians of culture. What what do you mean by demotions? Oh, well, I think you know, being see, seeing ourselves as servants, you know, rather than this um, one with power to domineer and and to take over territories of culture, um, that we must become literally custodians with keys that allow us to get into rooms, um, basement rooms where nobody goes into, and serve for years and years without um, ever being noticed and doing our tasks diligently and faithfully. Uh, Many of us write songs that never gets heard, uh, you know, paint images that never gets shown. Emily Dickinson wrote, 
thousand, literally over a thousand po of, of poems without ever knowing that they were ever read by anybody. And I think that's part of the task of caring for your, your culture is that there are soils to be tended to that nobody sees. And much of the work of tending a soil is underground, so you, you don't see it for a while. And it's it's only when the time is right that uh, tulip bulbs come up, you know, but uh, they also have to experience the winter uh, when nothing seems to be happening. So I, I, I think that's a typical experience of an artist. Um, but here uh, the, in the chapter that you note, I am speaking of one example, um, real example of a custodian who changed the world. Uh, his name was Fred Dambach, and uh, he was one of the first uh, people to sound the alarm of the Hudson being polluted and at a time when there was no pollution laws. So I, I use him as an example, uh, and the, you know, um, his, the victory that he experienced with his fisherman friends in the legal realm um, to reverse the, uh, the well, he really kickstart this notion that there is something, um, you know, clean air and clean water can be passed on to the next generation. And I use that metaphor for culture. Uh, culture is tainted. It is, it is full of pollution. We can't breathe. Um, we become bottom fish dwellers, like catfish, gobbling up everything just to survive. Um, and and I, I think I end up the chapter by uh, imploring artists to swim upstream and become trouts, you know, <laughs> beautiful, schooling fish that, uh, that, that are very, very discerning in what they eat and, and how they uh, present themselves. You know, when you think about beauty, uh, and, and connecting with beauty, there was a, a meme that went around that was kind of misleading, uh, but it went around everywhere of a group of teenagers looking at their smartphones while they were in front of a, a Rembrandt painting. I don't remember which painting they were in front of. And several people said, you know, this is what's wrong with this generation. And later it came out that actually what was happening is they, they had an assignment that they had to do. They were part of a class and they all had to look at their smartphones in order to answer the questions that they were being given at the moment. But there was something that was true about the sentiment there. I, I uh, had my son with me a year ago in Paris and uh, the, the crowds of people around Mona Lisa – but all taking selfies in front of this, this painting, almost not seeing it, just wanting to capture the, the moment uh, with the selfie. How do we cultivate a sense of beauty in this sort of um, social media time where it, it seems not to be as much about beauty as about capturing a, a reflection of being in the presence of the beauty, mm, if yeah. you know what I mean? Sure. And um, I mean, I suppose going to the Louvre and, you know, taking a photo selfie of yourself with the Mona Lisa is better than not going. Uh, but, but yeah, I write this essay about Da Vinci's other famous work, The Last Supper, when I, I wrote this uh, in response to all sorts of people uh, asking me to respond to the Da Vinci Code uh, by Dan Brown. And I, I, my immediate answer was, you know, I can't really 
be you know interviewed for this if I hadn't seen the original the last supper <laughs> I've seen photographs I've seen you know nowadays you can easily look it up on online but um, uh, so I literally went to Milan to see this painting before I would say a word about this painting all damn around <laughs> you know because it was so important to me that the cultural manifestation, whether it be painting or music or a uh, movie, many people comment on movie without even seeing it. And, you know, that, that uh, betrays for me the sense of integrity um, that uh, one must have. If you're going to comment on somebody's work, at least take the time to observe and see, uh, stop uh, and and listen to the music, you know, see the movie, go to the Louvre uh, if you're going to write about Mona Lisa. If it's on your bucket list and, you know, audit it, <laughs> you know, fulfill a checklist, uh, that, that may be fine. But you're missing a lot there because Mona Lisa is a very small painting. And, you know, as you're looking at it, you, right behind you is this masterpiece by Da Vinci, <laughs> which mm-hmm. no, nobody looks at. You know, they, right. they walk right by it. And, and that, uh, that painting is, is a remarkable painting. And so is The Last Supper. I, I talk about this um, as, as a way of standing under a painting and looking up at it, which you must in the refractory of uh, uh, Milan Church. To see the Last Supper, you have to look up, and that's what Da Vinci knew would be happening. So the angle of where you stand literally can change how the narrative uh, flows into the scene of the Last Supper. And it is a remarkable painting full of faith and and doubt, Um, you know, and Da Vinci captures the enigmatic quality of that scene just as much as he does in the person of Mona Lisa and um, you know what uh, what we can gather from that in a you know direct experience is very different from the media or photograph of it and uh, once we do that you know I think each one of us can uh, actually come up with something very generative to speak about the piece that is unique to us that you know, needs to be shared with the rest of the world. So, so I do uh, tell people, even my own work, Russell. I I I, <laughs> I tell people, well, you're not going to see the work, see the colors for about ten minutes. <laughs> so you have to stay with it because we're so driven to go from A to B so quickly. You know, um, and and we have these created this uh, mind that has categories for survival's sake, you know, that you were, you know, so you are standing in front of a very seemingly monochromatic green painting. You say, well, that's a green painting. You know, let's move on. But if you stay with it, uh, as my uh, friend David Brooks did, uh, he wrote about it in New York Times. He, he said, you know, I couldn't believe what I saw after 10 minutes. I saw an entire galaxy open up. <laughs> like, how could that be possible? And so our eyes, you know, are an amazing instrument, right? It's part of the brain, actually. It goes straight to the back of the brain where everything is integrated. So sound and feel, you know, touch, uh, smell, taste, and, and vision, it, it all goes back into this integrated place. 
so some people with synesthesia, they, they can, they can, all the senses come alive when they see something and, and it must be disconcerting, you know, to have that, but, but it, it really is an indication that the potential human experience is so vast that, I mean, we don't have to go to the Louvre. We can just open our eyes in front of us. A tree has multiple refracted lights that we, we can capture with our eyes. And it, it's actually going into the brain, but we shut it down. You mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, running into kids who'd grown up in churches in Greenwich Village and, and who'd had bad experiences. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I've had this conversation literally today, uh, and they're, they're very similar uh, conversations. One with, was with a scientist and the other was with a novelist. Neither of them had bad experiences at all uh, in their churches growing up, uh, but both of them felt alienated uh, in in their churches. And the novelist, particularly, who's not a so-called Christian novelist, so he has the understanding that a lot of um, his fellow Christians just wonder why you wouldn't, in a very utilitarian sort of way, write Christian things rather than write novels about other things as a as a Christian. And so he just feels alone uh, in his church. What sort of advice would you give to churches uh, who have uh, artists of various kinds, uh, whether at a small scale or a large scale, how can they better minister to artists? Yeah, so I... When I introduce myself, um, I, I, especially to church audience, I say, I am not a Christian artist and I shock people, you know, and because I have just been introduced <laughs> as, as a person who did the four holy gospels illumination, you know, and I, I work with church planting, uh, you know, uh, all over the world. And, and, and they're like, well, how could you not be a Christian artist? I said, I am a photo of Christ first and then artist and I don't dare use the word Christian as an adjective mm. <laughs> you know I don't trust Christian plumbers <laughs> yeah. I'm a good plumber you know right. Um, right. and and to me being an artist is to photo the only artist you know the creator or who created out of nothing I mean I can't do that but I you know God has invited me to be a little artist and 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 I want to be the best that I can. And I, I don't want to label myself. The Holy Spirit doesn't look at labels anyways. I imagine this novelist, they're about being dedicated to a craft or dedicated to um, serving research or science. My father was a research scientist, not a Christian. So, But I, I admired him because he was so, so stubborn about data. He, he he's not going to accept anything, you know, as uh, you know, anything that is close to the truth. He he will only accept the truth as truth. <laughs> and I wish Christians had this, you know, because I and and I, I I was able to tell my father before he passed away how much his scientific rigor has helped me to be an artist because his attentiveness to detail and commitment to truth was unparalleled. And I grew up watching him do this. And, and so I wanted to imitate in a way that is, you know, toward the truth. And when I say I'm a follower of Christ, 
you know, if my father was that, I mean, think of God being so precise, right? So I, I don't want to dishonor that by just labeling myself as a Christian. If I am called that, I'm honored and I, I, I say thank you. But what that means is, you know, I, I feel like I fall so short of what the perfection that, you know, Christ that is in me is creating. And I can only fall back on grace every day. Um, and I want to tell, talk to you about that grace, you know, because it, it means so much to me because I, I, I know how hard it is to, to have that. And, and yet I admire people who, so, so I would tell them that, um, I'm there with you. I, I, I want you to be the best scientist that you can ever be. I want you to be the best novelist that you can ever be. And whatever that means, God is smiling at that, whether we have, end up with a personal journey that is intimate with God. I, I pray that, and I, I've been through those battles myself. So I think I can help in a little way. But, you know, most importantly, it's your journey. And you, you are the one to discover something new that I can't even see. And I, I would be excited to journey with you because I, I don't even know what that is, right? So, so, so the language that you have would help me to understand myself uh, and my faith. And, and so, I, you know, I, I, I would uh, be honored to um, know more about, you know, individual journey. This is Makoto Fujimura, and his book is Culture Care, Reconnecting with Beauty for Our Common Life. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. My delight. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it helps us also if you leave a review at uh, one of those places as well. And if you're listening on a smartphone, Tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes and some other resources that you can check out. This is Russell Moore and you're listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.